You know, the, the majority of Bible prophecy leads to one singular event. The jewel of the Middle East. It's an event that's a battle for the soul of Jerusalem. And the Eastern and Western powers of Rome, which we considered in our first session, the history and the future of those two powers are absolutely critical when we look at what's going to happen to Jerusalem, because it's going to herald the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think about East and West, we thought a West was, we, we concluded that West was the European power and the East became the Russian power. When we think of the Western power today, it's almost fulfilled its work. The woman on the beast, She's polluted a civilization for generations in wrong teaching. And she's using the beast nations of Europe to spread her toxic, toxic poison to belie people from what the truth is. When we look at Europe today, it's in economical crisis. It's in Christian crisis and it's in a migrant crisis. Europe is on the verge of collapse. And it needs a power to support her. We believe that power to be the old Constantine Empire, Russia. And so this is kind of where we're going today. So let me just give it just a little brief back, background. So where we left off, we, we left off with the West as the beast and power with the ten horns and the dragon power was on the east. That's where we saw it. The Eastern power was the Constantinople power, the Western power was the Roman power. But of course, there was two religions. On the West, we have Catholicism that's headed up at the Vatican. And on the East, we had the Eastern Orthodox Church that was headed up by the church known as Saint Sophia. But both empires collapsed dramatically. Constantinople lasted a thousand years ahead of Rome, but it, co it collapsed to the Ottoman Empire, who turned the Eastern powers into Muslim nations, into Islam religion. And so what happened? Well, we saw that the power of the East was taken away and it moved up north to the Third Rome, the Third Rome, which we now know as Moscow. And there's one thing that Russia wants. He wants St. Sophia's church back. He doesn't want it as a mosque. He wants it back as Eastern Orthodox. He wants to come down. And the Bible describes that he will come down as a great whirlwind. He's going to shock the whole world suddenly as they gasp at the power and the enormity and the strength of this old Constantine empire that seeks his treasures. And he's going to come down. And when he does, he's going to come to Turkey first. And he wants Turkey first because that's where Constantinople was based. And he's going to reunite the two legs of Nebuchadnezzar's image making the West and the East Christian again. And that's what we believe when we think about Nebuchadnezzar's two legs. And I said before, 
It's got one leg at the moment. It needs two. The two feet need to stand upon the two ancient powers of Rome. Today, Europe, and today, Russia. That's going to take Turkey. He needs to take Turkey. It is absolutely crucial. So when we think about signs of the times, that's where our eyes need to be on, his relationships with that particular country. Well, where is he? He's right on the border. Georgia stands in the way, and Georgia and Russia have had a bad history together, bad blood between Russia and Georgia. He is right on the borders of Turkey. His menace and his greed is going to ensure control over him because he wants to take back his old empire. This is how close we are to him taking that ancient city. He's going to come, it says in Daniel 11 and Ezekiel 38, he's going to come, it says in verse 9 of Ezekiel 38, as a great cloud. And the enormity of the Russian Empire currently and in the future is like a great cloud. He's going to swarm over the Middle East and the West like a great cloud. And he's miles, just miles now away from taking what he desperately wants. And the thing is with Russia, he's, he's not secret about it. And the Eastern Orthodox Church is not secret about it. Because if we look and go to the Kremlin and look at some of the, the churches and the cathedrals in Moscow today, well, look what we see. On all of them, they have the cross. And underneath it, they have the moon. The moon is the symbol of Islam and it is the flag of Turkey. And Turkey is the place which occupies old Constantinople, which is now Istanbul. And so in his symbol, in his religious symbol, he wants the cross ahead of the moon. He wants to Christianize the old Ottoman Empire. That's his ambition. And that's been his sole ambition since the times of Constantine, nearly two thousand years ago. This is what he wants to do. And the thing is, when we think about the relationships between Turkey and Russia, well, there's pretty bad blood between them too. You know, we have planes being shot down. We have tensions in those two territories. There's arms deals being traded between them. They're shaking hands there, friends, but there's a grimace on the mouth. Huge tensions lie between these two powers. And Putin wants him, and he wants that nation. This is, this is where Ezekiel 38 comes into motion. And not only this, Turkey now are in a state of absolute chaos. They're creating enemies all around the Middle East, and he's trying to align himself with Europe. That's what he wants to do at the moment. And so Turkey has his enemies as well. But the big one is the man of Moscow. That's 
the great enemy of Turkey. You know, Brother Thomas expected Turkey to fall to Russia. But he said it would happen after Christ's return, not before it. And many brothers and sisters and many people who historically use Bible prophecy believe that Turkey will fall after the return of Christ. Can't be sure, but that's the belief of many brethren and sisters who've gone before us. And Russia now is aligning himself to do that. And this is going to set up the scene. This is going to set up the scene for Ezekiel 38. So Ezekiel 38 is the, the canvas of the two legs on Nebuchadnezzar's image. And when we see all those nations, one leg is going to stand on the east of those nations, and one leg is going to stand on the west of those nations. And we see that when we come in to Ezekiel 38. And so we're setting the tone now. We're setting the tone to, I would say, four key chapters when we come to the return of Christ. Daniel 11, Ezekiel 38, Revelation 16, and Zechariah 14. And all of it, is in a, it, it speaks of a great battle for the soul of Jerusalem. When Russia occupies or tries to occupy Jerusalem, that's going to bring the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does so after he's taken Turkey. So, right, let's go right to Ezekiel 38. Ezekiel 38, as we open up our Bible. So, so when Russia comes down and takes Turkey, what effectively is happening, happening there, he's reinstituting the, the old Holy Roman Empire. It, it's going to be the bridge, Turkey, between the West and the East. And in terms of territory, they're then together a Christian line all across Western and Eastern Europe. And only that one city, Constantinople, stands in the way of that being the case. So what's going to happen is that Russia is going to be the Rosh of Ezekiel 38. He's going to be the Gog of Ezekiel 38. He's going to be the King of the North of Daniel chapter 11. He's going to be the Dragon of Revelation 16. He's going to be the Gathering of Nations of Zechariah 14. And he's going to become the Eastern Leg of Daniel chapter 2. It's all going to come together in one swift motion as he becomes the old Emperor Constantine reborn. So, Ezekiel 38. We're going to look now at the world's canvas as we see the rise of the old Holy Roman Empire. So look at verse 2. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now, here, Gog in verse 2 is clearly the main protagonist, isn't he? He is kind of the symbol, the name 
of all these enemies who are going to come down and take Turkey and eventually try and take Jerusalem. And God says the name of that group of nations, the name of that confederacy is Gog. He's the main protagonist. But notice here, he's the head of Rosh, of Meshach, and of Tubal. Now, we only have to look at etymology. We only have to look at the old words and how they developed over time to realize very quickly, if we do our research, that these three words, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, are the three words for Russia, Moscow, and Tobolsk. Rosh is a word associated with Russia. Meshach is a word associated with Moscow. And Tubal is a word associated with Tobolsk. And of course, those two cities are great cities in Russia. So the Bible is becoming really consistent, isn't it? That when we realize the Constantine Empire, the Constantinople Empire moved north, they moved to Meshach, they moved to Tubal in the place of Rosh. That's where they went to. And here now is a latter-day prophecy explaining to us that these nations now, or these areas, are going to come down to take a spoil. Notice, though, another thing in verse 2. The man of Gog, he's described as a prince or a chief. Now, if you were looking in your Hebrew scriptures, the word prince there means it means a militant leader, a chief of an army. That's what's being described here as the prince of Rosh, a militant leader of Rosh, Russia. You know, when we think about the leader of Russia today, he's very much a militant leader. In fact, if we only look at the news, we find out that he's been acclaimed a Tsar of Russia. And you'll never have a guess where that title Tsar comes from. Well, it means chief. And its name goes right back to the times of the Byzantium Empire at Constantinople, where the emperor of Constantinople was known as a Tsar. And here, Putin is being claimed as the new Tsar, the new militant leader of old Constantinople. And you know what's really interesting is that the Tsar of Constantinople, his main job was to protect Roman Christians. Christianity is going through a major crisis. Europe is going through a major crisis. You could say that Christianity, Roman Christianity, needs a Tsar. We believe Christianity needs a Saviour, Messiah, but Roman Christianity, they desperately need a militant 
Sar. And you know this name Sar. It's a Latin derivation of the name Caesar. Because in the West they had Caesars, but in the East they had Sars. We're looking at here a new Caesar of Rome and their responsibility was to protect the faith and protect Christianity and protect, protect the Holy Roman Empire. And we believe this is exactly what Putin, it might be Putin, it might not be, who knows, but whoever's in control of Russia, his role is to protect as it was in the times of Constantinople. Now, if we look down in verse 15, Gog and his armies, well, they come from the north, and it makes sense that they come from the north because that's exactly where those people from Byzantium fled to. They fled north, created Moscow, and now many, many, many years later, they're going to come down again and reclaim what they once had. And here we're going to see the feet of iron and clay now stand, right? Now we remember, don't we, that the feet of iron and clay, it's iron which speaks of Rome, and it's clay that speaks of the seed of man, those lesser, lesser developed nations, and they're mixing together, and it's not going to stand. The image will topple, and it's going to herald that great stone, which is the Lord Jesus. So we're going to see now who is going to align himself with this powerhouse. Who's going to align himself with the Tsar of Russia as he spreads his dominance and his power across all the earth? Well, we're expecting, aren't we, to see what was once Constantinople, right? The Constantine Empire, the Byzantium Empire. And we're also expecting the old Western Empire, because time hasn't changed really. Their roots are still there at the seed of the serpent. It cannot be removed by man, it has to be removed by Christ. So that's our expectation. And when we look at Ezekiel 38, we have all of these nations and have a guess what? We have a mix between two powers together. The Ottoman power, which was Constantinople, the Muslim nations, and we have the Western nations, which is Europe because they're still the same territory. Uh, hopefully that's going to make a little more sense as we work our way down. So let's have a look at verse two. We're going to go through these really quickly. And what I don't have time for is to give a history lesson on how we know that these nations occupy these territories. It's well rehearsed. It's been trialed and proven. Pick up a history book, have a look online. You can, you can find it out for yourself. So we're not going to go through that. But if we look in verse two, we've got the land of Magog. Now, now Magog was the old Scythia nations, the old Scythia tribes, and they, they landed eventually in what we know as Eastern Europe. So the land of Magog is what we know as Ukraine, right? And Poland, that's the area of Magog. And we only have to look at the news and Eastern Europe is in utter turmoil. They're an economic disaster. So what's Putin doing? He's building relations, a huge gas line to be built through Eastern Europe into Germany. 
what happened as the whole world was focusing on COVID-19. With the whole world wearing gas, uh, wearing, um, I said gas masks, <laughs> pretty much they are, aren't they? The masks that we put on our faces and keeping two meters away as we're all focusing and worrying about that, going shopping, going crazy. What's Putin doing? He's in conflict with Belarus. Belarus is in Magog. What else? Look in verse five. Persia. Well, this is an easy one, isn't it? Persia. We now know Persia as Iran. This was the land of Persia during the times of Ezekiel. So we can see we've got a different color now. I've hopefully color coordinated it really well to make it easier. So the purple is the old Constantine or Constantinople powers, the Byzantium powers, which is now the Ottoman Empire, pretty much the Muslim countries. He wants it back. He wants that property back. So what is he doing? He's working on trade. He's welcoming oil transactions. He's going to be producing the biggest amount of oil into Iran. He's helping and encouraging the EU to support Iran in nuclear development. Because it's the old Ottoman power. He wants it back. What's he doing in verse five with Ethiopia. Well, what's he doing here? He's building a militant base there. He's supporting a Russian naval base in Sudan, in Africa. The African people absolutely love him. He's their hero. He's their hope. He's building trade and economic relations into Africa because it's the old powers that was once part of the powers of Rome. Goma in verse six. Look at verse six, we've got go, um, sorry, Libya in verse five, sorry. So Libya, there's no, there's no um, it's not hidden of the influence that Moscow has in Libya. He's building, again, a military footprint in there, a militant base in Libya. What's he doing in Goma? Well, Goma is over here in, the, in Western Europe. Germany and Russia are getting closer and closer. Macron and Putin are developing relationships. And the reason is that Europe now are beginning to realize that the void that Brexit has caused needs to be filled. It's caused an absolute landslide of chaos has Brexit. And so what does Russia want to do or what does Europe want to do? It needs someone else and the relationships it's going to be built, built upon its friendship with Putin. Lastly, Togomar, places just north of Turkey, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, that area warming relationships between the two, security partnership. Russia and Kazakhstan confirm ratification of treaty on good neighbor relations. Daniel 11 tells us that the king of the north will deceive the whole world because he's like the serpent. 
the serpent was subtle like any other beast and deceived the woman. His roots go right back to that ancient evil that we see in Genesis chapter 3. Did we know that manipulation, social media manipulation, fake news and hacking pretty much originates from Russia? He is deceiving the whole world to the point that he can even hack an American election. That's the power at his disposal. And he'll do it because he wants the Ottomans to be replaced with the Christians. He wants Constantinople back. I'm hoping I'm making that really clear. Again, I sound very much like a parrot, but this is exactly what we think and what the Bible implores us to understand is going to happen. He needs this to be re-established. So there's our countries of Ezekiel 38. And if you notice, we've seen this map almost the same as what we saw in our previous session. The east and the west together, the two legs of Nebuchadnezzar's image and the dragon and the beast together. This is it. This is the final phase of the rebuilding of the Holy Roman Empire. There's one, one nation which we've discussed for this to happen. There's one nation that is the bridge between the two, which is this nation of Turkey. This is the crucial area that's begging to be taken for Christ to come. And we're going to see this now. We're going to focus a bit of our attention now on this particular nation of Turkey. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 16. And Revelation, of course, as we discussed in our session before, is a, is a book of sign and symbol. And when we look at Turkey, Constantinople, God gives the symbol of the river Euphrates. That, that's the symbol he's giving, the river Euphrates. That's Turkey. So if we look at Revelation 16 and verse 2, it says, And the sixth, it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. So that river Euphrates, right, is a symbol of Constantinople. Was Byzantium, then became Ottoman, and it will become soon Russian. That's the symbol God is giving. But he's saying that this river was plentiful, and the Ottoman Empire was plentiful. It reached out to most of the Eastern powers, but it's been drying up. And what we have left of the Ottoman Empire is basically just a small pool that once was. It's completely dried up. Well, I say completely, nearly dried up. Russia is gonna dry it up. And he's gonna inundate it with a flood. That's what's gonna happen. He's going to inundate Turkey with a torrential flood because it's going to be dried up for him to fill it. And now we're going to look 
at when this started to happen. It started to happen, the drying up of the river Euphrates, believe it or not, in the First World War. In the First World War, the Ottoman Empire, of course, not only occupied Turkey, Constantinople, but he occupied Jerusalem. And we know Jerusalem is that tipping point, isn't it? It's the crucial place which all of the Bible focuses on. And what happened in 1917, a man named General Allenby, who was a British man, he comes in, he's based in, he's based in Egypt at the time, and he comes into Jerusalem and he literally pushes the Turkish powers, the Ottoman powers, out of Jerusalem. And ever since that moment, in 1917, the Ottoman Empire has been getting shorter and smaller and tinier as the years go by, until it's now just a small pool left of what once was the symbol of the river Euphrates. And it all started by this man, Allenby, as he comes in. Now, what's really, really quite interesting is that this general, this British general, was in Egypt. His camp was based in Egypt before he came and liberated Jerusalem from the Ottoman powers. And this sets about now another crucial chapter in Bible prophecy, which is Daniel 11. Because the person who occupies Egypt is a person who's known as the king of the south. And the person who occupies the old Ottoman Empire is known as the king of the north. And this fight, this battle we're looking at here, when Arabi walks in, it was a momentous moment, is mentioned in Daniel chapter 11. And it's all about the drying up of the river Euphrates. So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 11. This is really important because Revelation 16 and Daniel 11 work side by side. Daniel 11 is going to start that drying up of the river Euphrates, the Ottoman Empire. So if you've got your Bibles handy, let's just quickly go to Daniel 11. And what we see here as we work our way through the chapter, is a succession of powers. And it all started off with the Greeks. The Greeks were the ones who started these two powers, which are known as the King of the North and the King of the South. So again, I've color-coded it. The King of the North, Ottoman Empire, Constantinople power, Turkey power, whatever power you want to use, it doesn't matter because they're the King of the North. That's the whole territory that's known as the King of the North. And he's going to be at conflict now in Daniel 11 with the King of the South. So what we have here are these two powers that started off by the death of Alexander the Great. He gave his powers to four of his generals. He gave territory to four of his generals. And the Bible focuses not on all of four, really. It focuses on, really, the two powers which were known as the Seleucid and the Ptolemy Empire. The Seleucid Empire is basically the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire is basically known as the Constantinople Empire. The Constantinople Empire is basically known as the Turkey Empire. The Turkey Empire is basically known as the Russian powers, the Russian Empire. It doesn't matter. 
It's the king of the north, whoever occupies that territory. It's the same thing, just different nations occupying that part of the world. Do we see that? So now the king of the south, which is in Egypt, known as the Ptolemy Empire in the Grecian times, it became as the Egyptian Empire. So as we work our way through time, it changes hands. You know, it's almost like passing on the baton, isn't it, in a game of relay. You know, you pass the baton on to a new person and they run with it and they pass the baton on to another person. It's just a succession of powers dominating the same territory. That's all it is, Daniel chapter 11. But the King of South is really, really quite important because that's eventually where the man Allenby was in Revelation chapter 16. So if we look on the screen, right, here we go. Can you see it's drying up a little bit there? Okay, the Ottoman Empire, the British come in. I love that animation. That's as good as you're going to get. The British Empire comes in, boots out or pushes out the Ottoman Empire, right? And they liberate Jerusalem. That's Revelation 16 right there, what we saw, the drying up. Ever since this moment, the purple powers, let me go through them, the Seleucid power, the Byzantium power, the Ottoman power, the Turkey power, the Russian power, look, it's been drying up since this moment, right? It pushes out. And let's have a look at the words. Look at verse 40. At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. The king of the south in Daniel 11 and verse 40 is the British Empire who occupied Egypt, which was once known as, known as the Ptolemy Empire, which is what all Daniel 11 is about, those two powers that change from hand to hand. And here... The British in 1917 pushed at him, the Ottoman Empire, right? Verse 40. Notice the start of verse 40. At the time of the end. To many of us, World War I was ancient. 1917, and God says, that's the time of the end. Because that's going to start now the drying up of this Ottoman power. And the time of the end shall the king of the south, those who occupy Egypt, the Ptolemy Empire, Britain, will push at the Ottomans. And he did that in 1917. And look, if you look at the screen, since then, oh, it's just dried up, isn't it? That's the Ottoman Empire today. We call that Ottoman Empire Turkey. That's all it is. Almost evaporated. It's ready to be filled. This is the final reforming of the two powers of Daniel chapter 11. We're going to focus on the king of the north, not the king of the south. That's another subject at this point. Focusing on the king of the north. And the king of the north shall come against him. Who's the him there in verse 40, at the end of verse 40? 
it's got to be still the same hymn that we read at the beginning of verse 40, which is the Ottoman power. The Ottoman power doesn't really exist anymore. It's Islam, it's Turkey, but it's the same territory. That's the point. It's the same territory. Now, who's the new king of the north? The new king of the north here at the end of verse 40 is the old Constantinople power that wants to reclaim Constantinople. And that's Russia. So let's go through that again. Daniel 11, at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. That's Britain pushing against Constantinople, the old Ottoman Empire. We have a drying up and then we shift in time years ahead to the time we're living in now. And now we've got a shift of powers, no longer Ottoman, now Turkey. And the king of the north, Russia, shall come against Turkey, the Ottoman power. Russia wants the Ottoman power, the Turkey power, back. And he's going to push and come against him. And notice like this, notice the end of the verse 40. Right? He's not just going to push him, is he? He's going to come as a whirlwind. And he's going to sweep. He's going to sweep across. Gog is going to come and sweep the king of the north. And will come like him as a whirlwind. And the word whirlwind there means suddenly. He's going to shake the earth as he comes suddenly. We see the signs today. But the whole world will be taken by surprise when he takes Constantinople back. So Daniel 11 is really, really crucial when we work with the history of the old Roman Empire and we look at the current events of what happening, what's happening today and we see what happened at the drying up of the river Euphrates. The two powers are at conflict with one another, with one another and the battle is for the soul of Jerusalem. That's the point. As Allenby came in and pushed the Ottoman Empire out of Jerusalem, it's going to happen again in the future, but it won't be Allenby. It will be Jesus. And he's going to push that old Seleucid, the old Ottoman, the old Russian, Turkey, Constantinople, whatever you want to term it, he's going to push the king of the north out and wipe them out. So what we saw in 1917 is just a very small thing of what's going to happen when Jesus comes to save Jerusalem, because he's going to occupy the territory of the king of the south. But that's, a, that's another subject. Okay? Right. So when we think about the powers of the king of the north, in, in, in this territory, as we work our way through the Seleucid powers, they, they always occupied the, the places of Babylon, which we now call Iraq, and the place of Iran and Syria. The king of the north has always had power over that territory. This is a headline last year of Putin. Putin is the new king of Syria. 
they might as well say Putin is the new king of the north. Because that purple power has always occupied the Syrian, Babylonian, Iraqi, Persian power, whatever you want to term it. It's always the same territory. And he wants that claim back. That's what he wants. And what he's going to do. He's going to bring the dragon of Revelation chapter 13, the dragon power of Revelation chapter 16 into Turkey. The moment he claims Turkey as his own property is the time he becomes the dragon power of Constantinople. And he will reclaim territory of Saint Sophia, now Hagia Sophia, which is a mosque, and it will become Christian. And doing so, he will reunite the East and the West. This is where our eyes need to be scanning to. It's this part of the world where God's attention is focusing upon, on the Eastern power of Nebuchadnezzar's image. Right. So just to show uh, the consistency of Ezekiel 38 and Daniel 11, I know lots of us love Bible echoes, right? So no surprises here that Daniel 11 and Ezekiel 38 is the same language. The time of the end, the northern parts, the king of the north, like a storm, it says in Ezekiel 38, like a whirlwind in Daniel 11, to come and take power, gold and silver, carry silver, it says in Ezekiel 38. And in Ezekiel 38, it talks about the falling of Mount Jerusalem. They shall fall on Mount Jerusalem, just as it says in Daniel 11, verse 45. That's where their destiny ends. The destiny of the dragon power, the destiny of Russia, ends on the mountains of Jerusalem, as he claims the title of the King of the North. So, why is the Ottoman Empire being dried up? Now, what's the why? Why wait? You know, why is that a sign for us? Well, I think Ezekiel 16 continues. So, look, if you've got your Bible still open, Ezekiel 16, sorry, not Ezekiel 16, Revelation 16, apologies there, <laughs> Revelation 16. It continues. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates and the water was dried up. So that's where we were in 1917 and it's been working its way ever since. And why is it being done? Is it to prepare, prepare Putin? Is it to signal Putin's arrival to Turkey? No. It's been drying up that the way of the kings of the East might be prepared. Do you know who the kings of the East are? It's the saints. The Lord Jesus Christ will arrive on the East and he's going to arrive as the son of righteousness which will dawn from the east. 
And so the drying up of the Ottoman Empire is so that the saints can be prepared. And as the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the saints will be ready that they might be prepared to walk with him into Jerusalem. Not as Allenby and the British forces, but as the multitudinous bride. That's why it's all being prepared, so that we might be prepared. So when we see Turkey and we see the conflict, it's not signaling for Russia. It's not to alarm Russia people, Russian people, what's going on. They, they're ignorant to it. The drying up of this empire is for us. It's to show that what we do, what we believe, is not in vain. That what we're seeing has been destined when these words were written through inspiration, that we might be prepared. And the reason why Gog, Russia, the king of the north, the eastern power, the dragon power, the eastern leg, the reason why he hasn't got a clue is because God says in Ezekiel 38, I will put hooks in his jaw. I will drag him down, says God. It says in verse 10 of Ezekiel 38, an evil thought will come into his head. He'll have no idea. He'll just do it. He's behaving on behalf of what God is destined to do. But we know. And that's special. So where is he being gathered to? So we're going to go to another one of our readings. Um, Revelation 16. We know this verse really, really well. What is this bringing about? So when he takes Turkey, he's going to come like a whirlwind and then he's going to come and take a spoil. He's going to have a taste. That, that's the point, isn't it? When that northern power Christianizes Turkey, he's going to have a taste for power. And he's going to cast his eyes on his old friend, Jerusalem, the jewel of the Middle East, the treasure of the Middle East. And he's going to look, an evil thought will come, and he's going to come and take a spoil. And it's at that moment we have Revelation chapter 16. And verse 16. So who's there at this great final battle? It's termed Armageddon. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. This is it. This is Ezekiel 38. This is the description of what God has called it. Armageddon. But who's there? Who's at this great battle? Well, they're old friends of ours by now because we've had over an hour of them. Verse 13, the dragon, which is the eastern powers of Rome, the beast, which is the western powers of Rome, 
and the false prophet, which is the whole religious system together, led up by a papal horned power. Those are the three who are going to come against Israel as the East and the West are united, as the beast and the and the, the dragon are united, as the two legs of Nebuchadnezzar's image stand with its feet upon the whole of Europe, West and East. He's going to rise up. And there we see the rising up of Armageddon as they're all together once the Ottomans fall entirely and it's completely dried up. So, finally, we've seen the dragon power, the king of the north, the Russian, the old Ottoman, the Byzantium, the Seleucid, right? We've seen them and we know what they're going to do. What's going to happen to the West? Europe. What's their destiny? The two legs of the image need to stand. At the moment, poor old Nebuchadnezzar is hopping. He's only got one because it's one leg is in, in the West. It's waiting for the East. What's happening in the West? Well, it's no surprise, is it, that in Ezekiel 38, Magog and Goma are mentioned. These are the two territories now that occupy the European Union. The European Uni Union or the West that we saw at the final phase in Revelation chapter 17, the woman and the beast. And here they are together in the European Parliament with the flag of Europe and they're in crisis, friends. You know, they're in terrible crisis. I'm going to have to thank Jojo Tudor for this, actually, if he's listening, because he sent me something really interesting. Boris Johnson was interviewed by The Telegraph a few years ago. And the question was, and it was a jokey question, if the European Union was an animal, what animal would the European Union be? Boris Johnson paused, stuttered a lot, and ended up saying that if the EU was an animal, it would be a Crimea. You know what a Crimea is? A Crimea is an ancient Greek creature that has the head of the goat, the head of the lion, and the tail of a serpent. And what's fascinating is that with the head of the lion, well, that's Babylon in Daniel chapter 7. The head of a goat, well, that's Greece in Daniel chapter 8. And the tail of a serpent, well, that's Rome in Revelation 12. And you know what? Boris's answer was absolutely spot on. Because that's the animal God describes Europe as being. He describes them as a lion. He describes them as a goat. 
And he describes them as a serpent because they're all accumulated together. Europe is that creature, the beast system that all came from Babylon as we work our way through the different phases. And you look, look you know, <laughs> we don't have time because we're going to finish very shortly, but Daniel 2, Daniel 7, sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 17 tells us that the beast system, the European power, has to be headed up by a religious governing body. And we see images and photographs of it. And if there's one photograph taken in time that speaks of the woman and the beast, well, there it is. But they're in a crisis. They're in a migrant crisis, a religious crisis, and an economic crisis. You know what's so fascinating about that photo? Interestingly, Theresa May wasn't present on that photograph. That's interesting, isn't it? But what's particularly fascinating is that they're all stood in front of a painting that was painted by Michelangelo. Do you know what that painting is called? The Final Judgment. They're standing in front of a painting that was painted about Armageddon. And there they are, together, working their deception, working their poison. And who's going to fill the great void of Britain? Well, it's going to be Russia. Thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And with this migrant crisis, with the rise of terrorism, with the rise of Islam, the two feet of Nebuchadnezzar's image cannot withhold the weight. It needs support, and it needs support from the eastern leg of Russia the role of a Tsar, the role of a Caesar, the role of a Constantinople king was to protect the West. Revelation 13 verse 4, listen to these words. They worshipped the dragon, the East, because it gave power to the beast, the West. They worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. The whole purpose of the dragon power of the east is to support the west. And it's done so through militant strength and militant might. And that's exactly what's going to happen as we work through time. He's going to support the west in terms of armaments. That's what he's going to do. And there's a global war happening on Christianity at the moment. And he's going to protect it. And we know he's going to protect it because what is he trying to do? 
he's trying to reunite the Eastern Orthodox Church with the Catholic Church. He's the main man, the only man, that can reunite the two religions. Russia is the final jigsaw piece that's going to reunite the West territorially, militantly, economically, and religiously. He's the final piece that's going to fit the jigsaw together as they all come to a swift conclusion as he comes to take a spoil from Jerusalem. And look, we all know the spoil of Jerusalem. There's been more Nobel Prize winners from Israel than almost any other nation, a country smaller than Wales. And that's saying a lot. <laughs> the great spoil of Jerusalem great spoil of Israel will be on this man's eyes and the, with the rise of anti-semitism and the wealth reserves that Israel has the whole world will support his maneuver apart from a group of nations who are also spoken Ezekiel 38 that will re re resist resist what he wants to do well finally the story and the future of Russia and Europe has been told many times in the Bible. It's just a repeat of what's happened time and time again. Final passage, friends, we'll go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. This is, of course, before, this is, of course, before Moses and the children of Israel walk into the Holy Land. So I just want you to look at the screen. This is Ezekiel 38. This is Revelation 16. This is Zechariah 14. And this is verse 40 of Daniel 11. This is what we've been looking at. We started off, didn't we, with just the one power of Rome. And we're going to conclude here with the two powers reuniting together. Time is going to repeat itself. But Ezekiel 28 has told us already it's going to repeat itself. So look at these words. Therefore, says Moses to Israel, shalt thou serve thine enemies, which Yahweh shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he have destroyed thee. Yahweh shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the ends of the earth, as a swift as an eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance. So we've got a nation here who's going to come as a yoke of iron, as swift as an eagle with fierce countenance. Now, I think that verse has three phases. The first phase we see with Babylon. In Jeremiah 28, Jeremiah says that Babylon wrapped a yoke of iron around the nation of Israel. 
Babylon, it says in Habakkuk chapter one, came as swift as an eagle. And in 2 Chronicles 36 and verse 17, Babylon, it tells us, came with fierce countenance. So Deuteronomy 28 was fulfilled in Babylon, but it has a second phase. Who else took Jerusalem into captivity? It was Rome. Now here we see the second phase of Deuteronomy 28. We know we know Rome as a nation of iron. In Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus Christ says about AD 70 that they will come as eagles, he says. And indeed they did. The Romans came with eagle banners, didn't they? And Daniel 7 says the beast of Rome has fierce countenance. And so Deuteronomy 28 was not only fulfilled with Babylon, but it was also fulfilled with Rome. But we're going to see the second phase, or the third phase, rather, of Deuteronomy 28. And dare I say that it's going to be the Russian phase. We know that Constantinople, or Constantine, was described as a man ruling with a rod of iron. We know that Russia is going to come down with fierce countenance. But what about the eagle in Deuteronomy 28? How is that fulfilled with Russia? Well, this was the Roman banner that was put upon high when they came and took Jerusalem. When Rome split into two, a new flag was created, the double-headed eagle that represented the western power of Rome and the eastern power of Constantinople. Do we know the flag of Russia today? Well, it's the double-headed eagle. He's going to come, as Deuteronomy 28 says, He's going to come with a yoke of iron, as swift as an eagle, with fierce countenance, just as Babylon and just as Rome. And when he does, well, Zechariah 14 tells us, doesn't it, that the Lord Jesus Christ with his bride shall come upon the Mount of Olives and a great earthquake will wipe the Gogian forces, the Gogian confederacy, away and Jerusalem shall be reborn as the kingdom of God on earth. By the way, I'll leave you with this small note, something in the news recently. Powerful earthquake could hit Israel within a decade. You know, We really are living in those last times. As the drying up of the river Euphrates is almost complete, let us, friends, prepare ourselves to be the kings of the East. Thank you.
I'm guessing we're all at different stages when it comes to prophecy. Um, so what we're going to do is, before we look at signs of the times and the events that's occurring in today's society, we've got to lay down some groundwork. That's really important. So we're going to take a history tour around Rome. So I hope we're ready for it. We're going to go right the way through and see how Rome pays, uh, plays a crucial part in Bible prophecy. So if we were to think about Rome as a society, we, we have to go really back to the origins of what sin was. We have to go right at the birth of sin. And of course, we're going to have to go to Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three is absolutely vital to understand so much stuff in the Bible, not only prophecy, but also the work of the Lord Jesus. So when we go to Genesis chapter three, you'll see, of course, we've got this skirmish, this inward war and an outward war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So the question I'm going to ask at the beginning is, and it's obviously rhetorical, right? So the question is, has this particular prophecy being fulfilled? Well, the answer is no, it hasn't been fulfilled. It's only partially been fulfilled. We see it being crucified and crushed on a tree, but sin still reigns. So Christ showed a way out of sin, but he didn't destroy sin altogether because sin still lurks in our hearts and death abounds greatly. So, so the question is then, how has it not been fulfilled? Well, when we think of the serpent, we have different manifestations of the serpent as we go through the scriptures and it interweaves and laces itself through the word. And we see the manifestation of sin, which is in people, when we come to something known as the beast. We remember, don't we, that the serpent was a subtle beast. And so when we come to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that mirrors Genesis, we're seeing a systematic beast whose origins lie with the serpent. But there's one other. There's not only a religious war, but there's also a militant war. There's two creatures. One that was the beast in Revelation, and the other one is the dragon. And the dragon serves its power as a militant opposition. So we have three manifestations of the serpent. We have serpent, the serpent, which is sin, which we all have. And then we have this systematic serpent, which is manifested in this religious beast and also manifested in this militant dragon. And it's in those final two ones, the beast and the dragon, where Revelation spends a lot of time looking at. So what we're going to do is we're going to debunk who the beast is and who the dragon is and why it entails itself across the Roman Empire. So we've got to go, I think, next to what I think is the spine of Bible prophecy. So as we look at the serpent, as it goes through these different manifestations, it's all symbolic we then come to the image of man in Nebuchadnezzar. Man is the lifeblood of sin. He's the one who serves the serpent. And here we have, of course, we know this so well, Nebuchadnezzar's image, and we know the various eras and the various civilizations that cut across and work them, themselves down the image. We've got the head of gold, which is Babylon, 
the two arms, which are the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, which is the belly, the two legs of Rome. And then when we come then to the feet of iron clay, we've got the 10 toes of the latter day mixed nations, which is the time in which we live in today. We're at the very feet, the base of man. And Christ is going to come as this great stone that's going to crush the image into smithereens, like the chaff on the summer threshing floor. The whole image of man is going to come to a final conclusion. Now, obviously, our focus is on the legs, Rome. So if we think about the Medes and the Persians, they had two powers. They had the Medes and they had the Persians. And it makes sense there's two arms that represent those two powers. But when we come to Rome, why are there two legs? Well, Rome, believe it or not, was split. It was divided. It began with one empire, but then became two empires. And the empire of Rome was split to the west and to the east. And that's exactly why we have two legs on the Roman Empire, the Roman legs of Nebuchadnezzar, Rome and Constantinople. The Constantinople power became the Byzantium Empire, which is in purple on the east. And Revelation gives symbols, of course, because it's a book of sign and symbol, isn't it? It gives symbols for these two powers. The one on the west became the beast, and the one on the east became the dragon. And that's exactly what we saw in Genesis, wasn't it? These two powers, the political, religious one, and then the militant one. And we can see how Nebuchadnezzar's image works its way to these two eras, these two powers of the Roman Empire. And that's why there are two legs standing. And the point is, Nebuchadnezzar's image has to be standing when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Currently, the image is not standing. It's got one leg. It needs to grow another leg for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. And what we're going to see in the second session is what's happening in the world today. That leg is growing back and soon it's going to stand tall and it's going to herald the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we have to go right back. We have to go back to the one empire. So I'm just teasing you here, like a big spoiler here, that we've got two beasts, two creatures. So we're going to go to Revelation 12, which was our reading. And in Revelation 12, we're at the one power of the Roman Empire. We call it the dragon power. So we're going to go right there. That was read to us. So Revelation 12 and verse 3. Okay, here we go. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. So this is the Apostle John, and he's seeing a wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. There's a lot of detail there. Now, I'm not saying anything new here today, by the way. This is all what we believe is a community that goes right back to our early pioneers. So this is not new. So we believe, and I'm going to prove it to you, 
that this dragon we're seeing in Revelation 12 is the pagan Roman Empire that existed in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, because Rome was just one empire to begin with before it became two. And here we see the manifestation of that power represented in this dragon power, right? But have a look at the words, the words here, friends. Have a look at them in verse nine. Look how it's described. The dragon, pagan Rome, is described as the old serpent. It's described as the devil and Satan, right? The devil, of course, we know is sin, sin in the flesh, banned sin. And Satan, of course, is the opponent. But notice he's described as the old serpent, the dragon power we see in Revelation 12, pagan Rome, contains the effects of sin that originates right from the very origin of sin. He is that manifestation of that serpent who beguiled Eve. He's the one who's right there from the beginning that through time has changed and manipulated and grown to become this superpower that God describes as this dragon power. There's something about this pagan system, this Roman empire, that deceives, that manipulates, that lies, that's subtle. And what he's doing, he's rivaling the seed of the woman, which we're going to come to in a second. He is against the seed of the woman. And Genesis 3 says there's a battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And here is very much so a physical and a spiritual war taking between the serpent and men and women who love the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice here, he's not only described as the serpent, but the devil or sin and Satan, which is an opponent. Now, John, of course, was receiving this wonder during the times of Rome before it became two. So he's actually in this dragon power right now is John as he receives this vision. What does the apostle, apostle Peter say about this dragon power? This is what he says. He says and exhorts the brothers and sisters through the spirit, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, the word adversary there is the word to describe somebody being brought into a court of law. Somebody who's under persecution. And Rome was the true adversary, wasn't it? Because faithful men and women who were taught by the early apostles were being trialed for their beliefs and persecuted for their beliefs. And they would be brought under a court of law and the verdict, what would it be? It would be thrown into a den of lions. And isn't it interesting that the spirit here says that the devil, which in this case is Rome, is like a roaring lion. Because that's exactly what happened to the Christians. They were the adversary. They were subtle. 
they were manipulative, they were deceptive, they were eager to crush the seed of the woman and throw them into the den of lions. And here Peter is describing the very same thing. So when we see in Revelation 12, the devil is the beat, the dragon, and we see the Satan is the dragon. It's not talking about a literal devil or a literal Satan. It's talking about what it represents, which is Rome, the Roman power, the adversary of the Christians. Right? So there we go. So let's go back then, because now something really interesting is going to happen. Because if you look down and scan your eyes down Revelation 12 and verse 3, you'll notice that the dragon has seven heads. You know, there were seven forms of government that ricocheted itself across the dynasty of Rome before it fell. Seven forms of government. And those seven heads represent those seven phases of Roman governments. But notice what else it says. It says that on the heads were seven crowns. And the crowns represent the sovereignty of these seven phases of governments. And so by crowning the head, the Bible is saying that these are the governments of Rome and there are seven of them as an empire all the way through we're seeing the whole fulfillment of rome shown in this dragon but it doesn't stop there not only are there seven heads not only are there seven crowns crowning the heads but there's also well there's 10 horns on the dragon now this answers the question why there are 10 toes on the image of nebuchadnezzar Ten toes, ten horns. And we can see how the two are aligned together, the feet of iron and clay. We're showing here the future of Rome right into the future as we see this dragon power. And it relates heavily to the beast we see in Daniel chapter 7. The beast, the fourth beast, showing the whole dynasty of the Roman Empire. So when we see... The ten, the ten horns, what, what do these horns and these toes speak of? Well, you know, you only have to look in your history books here. This is, you know, this is nothing new. Um, in the Roman Empire, there were ten horns and they were the thorn in the side of Rome because there were ten barbarian nations all scattered across the Roman Empire. And you'll notice here, this is really important that at this point in Revelation 12, it's the heads of the dragon that's crowned. Eventually, it's going to be the horns of the dragon or the horns of the beast that is crowned. At the moment, these ten horns are being subdued by pagan Rome, the dragon power. But eventually, as the power is transferred into the different phases of the beast, which we'll come to, those 10 horns, those 10 nations are going to have their own sovereignty and their own power. But at the moment, they have been quelled by the dragon, by Rome itself. So there we have the meaning of the seven heads, 
the ten horns and the seven crowns, all relating to the Roman Empire that existed in the times of the Lord Jesus. So we're just going to move on really quickly, because now something's going to happen. We're going to know, we're going to see now an earthquake, a political and a biblical earthquake that's going to destroy almost this dragon. Because you'll see in verse four, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as, as it was born. So here we have the dragon, Rome, and he's facing a woman. Why woman? Well, all the way through the Bible, the symbol of a woman speaks of a religious system. So the dragon now is facing a religious system that God puts as the symbol of a woman. And it's clear the dragon doesn't like her. In fact, he's opposing the woman. Well, why is he opposing her? How do we know? Well, look, he wants to devour her child. I mean, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? You know, he wants to literally eat the child and devour the child in which the woman is going to give birth to. And isn't it interesting that it was the Roman lions that devoured the Christians? And here we have the Roman dragon devouring the child of a religious system. So who might that religious system in that woman be? Well, it's got to be the opposition of the dragon, which was the early Christian movement that was set about by the early apostles. It was the seed of the woman that always opposes the seed of the serpent. And here we see the woman and the dragon. And the dragon detests the, the woman because Genesis 3 establishes a divine principle. She's not liked. The woman is the ecclesia. You know, when the Apostle Paul talks about the woman, the bride of Christ, he uses these words. He says, to the early Christians, I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin. The true ecclesia needs to be unpolluted. It cannot contain that seed of the serpent. It has to have purity like a virgin. As we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ as our husband. He wants to see a pure bride. But if we think about this woman, something's changed. Something's changed within the bride because we can establish very quickly that she's no longer a virgin. She's pregnant. 
when she's with child. Something's happened to the early Christian ecclesia has allowed this woman to become pregnant. And you know, when the Apostle Paul writes to Thessalonica, he talks about something known as the apostasy, the rebellion that's going to come within the ecclesia. And as Paul writes through the spirit in the times of Rome, this particular Rome here we're looking at, he says, and it's already begun. He says there's a rot that's set in, an apostasy, a movement that's come in, and the beginnings have started already, he says. And here we have her. The end product is going to be a child who's going to represent not the seed of the woman, but the seed of the serpent, because she has been polluted by the thinking of the serpent. You know, from, con from conception to birth, the gestation of a period of a woman is around 280 days. And after the Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again, in 280 years time, the child of this woman was going to reach the zenith of his power. If we use a day for a year principle, this child is going to produce the most terrible fruit. It all started off well, didn't it? But the seeds of doubt and the seeds of error had been implanted into the ecclesia. And now she's with child. But the dragon doesn't know it. He just wants to devour the child. So have a look, verse four to five. Whoever was born, this pagan dragon wanted to devour him. And he's going to be, verse 5, a man-child. A man-child was delivered. And Rome here wanted to consume the seed of the woman. But the irony is that it's going to be the woman who's going to produce the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent, sorry. She's the one who's going to produce that seed of the serpent. And so when we go back to Genesis 3, verse 15, the two great battles, the political one and the militant one that we saw right at the beginning, this woman is going to produce that very seed. And we're going to see him very, very shortly. And if we think about it, when we think about the language of Revelation 12, it's very similar, isn't it? It's very similar to the language we have of Mary, who gave birth to the perfect man, Jesus. But this child is going to be completely different, and he's going to go in the opposite direction. We no longer have a virgin. We have someone who's pregnant. And what we're going to see here right now is the birth of the Antichrist system. That's what we're seeing right now. She's going to give birth to that seed that's going to germinate and become the Antichrist system. Why? Because the mirroring is there, the parallels are there, the echoes are there, and the shadows are there right from the very beginning of the scriptures. The woman and the serpent. So, who was this man? Well, let's have a look at him in verse five. 
This man was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Right now, if there were loads of people on here, I might ask a question, but um, I won't. But when we think of iron, what do we think of? This man's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Which empire ruled all the nations like iron? Well, it's got to be Rome, isn't it? The legs of Daniel's image is Rome, and it's made out of iron. And here he is, an emperor he's going to be, ruling Rome and all of its nations like a Roman iron man. Now, this man was formidable. Oh, he was absolutely formidable. So powerful, so strong, so valiant was this man that in verse 9, he actually dethrones the dragon, <laughs> right? The dragon is going to be dethroned. I mean, the dragon can't believe it. This, this empire, this Roman power, this pagan system that was deceptive, that was subtle like the serpent, has now been dethroned in verse 9 by this child that grew up to be a man, that grew up to be an emperor. And he is going to dethrone pagan Rome. So what we're going to see is the government of one system is going to be replaced by another. You could say that this man was going to take the government on his shoulders. Oh, that's like Christ, isn't it? Christ takes the kingdom of God as a government on his shoulders, but this man is going to take the government of Rome upon his shoulders because he is anti-kingdom of God. He rules the kingdom of man. And a great change now is gonna happen in Revelation 12 a great political earthquake. One government is going to be overthrown and it's going to be replaced by another. And this man is the archetype. He's the one who's chiseling this all through. So which man? We only have to look on Google. <laughs> this is the age we can just do that now. But which man in the history of Rome cast out pagan Rome? Who was it? Who dethroned the dragon? It's this man. Emperor Constantine, or Constantine, depending what dialect you have. But this is the man who dethroned pagan Rome. She gave birth to a man-child, Constantine. This is not the Lord Jesus Christ we're reading here in Revelation 12. He is the complete opposite of what we have with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see why, because the origins of this seed is going to show itself much later on. Here he is, Emperor Constantine. Well, he was a political genius, right? But he was a spiritual disaster. What did he do? Well, he's the one who split Rome into two. So here we have it, Rome in all of its glory and all of its splendor. Constantine came along and he went, nope, I'm going to split the whole empire into two parts. And what he did, 
he was brief genius really because you know the legacy of rome still lives on today because of what he did but what he did he based the religious facets of rome in rome and then he moved his seat of militancy to constantinople which we now call turkey you know istanbul that's where it is so that's what he did he left rome he set up a new camp in Constantinople, and it was very strategic because if you look at the where he was, he was able then to have his seat of power then. It was really strategic on how he controlled the Mediterranean. That was vital for Constantine, Constantine, absolutely vital for him. So he created two empires, the Roman Empire in the West and the Byzantine Empire, which is in the East. That's what he did. But not only did he divide Rome politically, but he split it religiously. Constantine was the man who cast out pagan Rome and replaced it with false and fake Christianity. And this is the what he did. You imagine Rome now is an utter uproar. We have massacres on the streets. We have revolutions happening between the Christians and the pagans. And so Constantine has to do something about it. He needs to have a peaceful Rome. So what he does, he says, right, we're going to make the whole of the Roman Empire Christian now. And he did that, of course, to please the Christians. But how does he please the pagans? What he did? Not only did he Christianize Rome, but he allowed all the pagan theology, all the pagan teaching to infiltrate into Christianity. 30 years later, the doctrine of the Trinity was signed and sealed. And it was gone. That's what he did. The truth, as we know it, became just a remnant, a small group that's been passed down the ages from hand to hand, from voice to voice, till today. And we hold true and try and hold true to those early Christian beliefs taught by the early apostles that we become that chaste virgin. That's the point. And that's what he did. He Christianized Rome and then made a militant seat on the East and a political religious seat in the West. Now, what happens now? The Bible describes exactly what's happening. So we can see in the center there, we've got the dragon we saw in Revelation 12, right? But now we've got two empires. We've got the East and the West. The dragon now cannot serve two. There has to be one on the one and the other on the other. And so what happens is, the Bible now brings to life through what Constantine did, did a new creature. And this is what happens. Dragon is replaced by a beast. And the dragon moves to the east. So the beast then becomes part of the Western power, this new creature now that rises out of the sea, which we're going to look at. He comes out of the sea because something has happened. A political earthquake has happened. And this new creature comes and he's going to be based in the West. And the dragon power is going to be placed in the East. But this is really crucial. 
the dragon has been dethroned. Remember the horns? Remember the heads? Remember the crowns? Well, they've all been shifted now onto the beast. The dragon, right, he's been demoted big time. Total big time, because now the beast has taken all the sovereignty and the government. And now the East simply serves as a militant dragon. That's his job. He's a militant power. The West controls policies and religion. So that's what we're going to see now in Revelation chapter 13. And so here we see now the two legs of Nebuchadnezzar's image, right? I'm sorry if I sound a bit like a parrot today, because I feel like I'm saying the words East and West and Rome a lot. But it's the only way it's going to stick, right? That's how it was taught to me. <laughs> so I'm passing on the wisdom. So this is what we're going to see now. As we look at Revelation chapter 13, we're going to see this new beast. And we're going to focus all of our, our attention now on the Western power. That's where we're going to kind of focus all of, mainly all of our, the remainder of our session on that. Right. So if we go to Revelation chapter 13... We're going to see now this Western creature, this Western beast, rise out of the sea. Now, it's no surprise, is it, that we have a beast? When we think about what God describes man as, he describes men and women as beasts, doesn't he? He describes those who oppose him as beasts of the earth, he says, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 18. We remember Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? Nebuchadnezzar, who opposed and defied the living God in arrogance and stubbornness. And what does God do to him? He says, well, I'll turn you into a beast. Because that's the thinking of the beast. Because the serpent was subtle like any other beast. And so this is why we have the nation of Rome here in the western side being created and defined by God as a beast. This is, remember, this is how God sees it not how we see it, which should be how we see it, but this is really how God sees it. So, Revelation 13. Now, here we go. Verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. Let's notice here, we've got the seven heads, the ten horns and the ten crowns. That was on the dragon, wasn't it? Now it's not. It's been shifted. It's moved over onto the beast. The Western power. And how do we know this power now is religious? How do we know that this Western power is Christian or false Christianity? Well, we look in verse 1. Upon his heads are the name of blasphemy. All the sovereignty and the religious power now is transferred to this creature. And he's speaking the names of blasphemy, a religious pagan Christian beast that only occurred because Constantine not only divided Rome, but Christianized Rome. Now, what of the woman? What's happened to her? Where's she gone? What's she doing? Well, look at verse six. She's fleeing. She's fled. 
She can't believe what she's created. She's created this power, this man-child who has utterly polluted what true Christians believe, and she's fled to the wilderness. You know what's so tragic? The legacy of this woman doesn't end here. We're going to see her again. And if she started up as a chaste virgin, at the end of Revelation, she becomes a harlot. She's going to be completely manipulated by this Western power. She's actually going to be the one who controls eventually this Western power. That's the legacy of the church, the Ecclesia, that we see today. I'm going to show who the woman is today, and many of you will know who it is. So she's fleed or fled, sorry, to the wilderness as she's now becoming persecuted, not only spiritually, but also physically as well. Well, this beast you see now, right, Western Rome is going to go through different phases. It's going to change, you know, like we get older and we grow warts and bigger noses and big ears, right? Well, this Western power, this creature, this beast is going to get older and it's going to change as well. Its face is going to change through time. And this is what we have at the moment. So what we're going to do is very quickly, we're going to go through the different phases of this Western power as it transfers through time and it changes until what we have today. And we're going to go right to the final phase of the beast, which is in Europe today. So if we look at Revelation 12, here we go. We're in there. This is the dragon power. We've just seen him. Pagan Rome with these seven heads, that's the first creature we see in the book of Revelation. But we know, don't we, that when Constantine came, the man-child, he divided Rome and he created two timelines. Two timelines were created. The one which represents the East, Constantine, the Byzantine Empire, and the other timeline, which is the B, sorry, is going to be the Western power. So one the dragon, one the beast. So they're going to move forward in time. And the book of Revelation maps it all out and cross-references it across other passages in the scriptures. So we're going to focus on the Western power. Starts off with the first phase, the beast of the sea. This is the beginning of what we now know as the papacy. The papacy originated in Rome, Western Rome. And remember those 10 horns, those 10 barbarian nations? If you look at Revelation 13, the crowns are no longer on the heads. The crowns now are on the horns. So those 10 horns, the thorn in pagan Rome's side, have now been crowned because now they're going to have their own sovereignty. There's a great future for those 10 horns. And now they've been crowned the 10 barbarian nations. We're going to move right forward now. If you look at Revelation 13 and look at verse 11 to 18, we have the second phase. This is no longer now going to be the beast of the sea, right? Now a new beast is going to arise, known as the beast of the earth. This happened around about 800 AD when the papacy was fully fulfilled in Rome, in Christian Rome. 
have a look at verse 11. What does this beast do? Well, he speaks like a dragon. He speaks like pagan Rome. <laughs> That's what it's saying. He speaks just like paganism. He's deceiving the whole earth. But how does he look outwardly? Inwardly, he's the dragon. That's what he is inwardly. But outwardly, oh, he, he's, he's a lamb. He's just a little lamb. But inwardly, he's a dragon. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he spoke about wolves in sheep's clothing. And here we have a dragon in lamb's clothing. He's a whited sepulcher. He appears righteous on the outward, but inwardly, he's just raw paganism. That's just got the cloak of Christianity. He's wrapped up in Christianity, but inwardly he hasn't changed at all. His roots still lie in that defiant dragon power that Revelation 12 describes as the devil, the Satan, and the old serpent. But now he's just gone shopping, right, and bought himself some lamb's clothing. That's all it is. That's all it is. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that we have a lamb. In other words, he speaks of holiness. He speaks like a dragon, which means he's Roman. And he exercises all power, which means he's an empire. Holy Roman Empire. Right there in the lamb, dressed up as if it was a dragon. Revelation chapter 13, that is the Holy Roman Empire. And now he's gonna change again. He's going to go through another phase. And this time we're gonna see, look in verse 15, the image of the beast is created. So now there's an image, a mirror image of him. That he needs to be this idol in all the world. That happened in around 1073, where the Pope was made supreme over all Rome in terms of religion. He had authority as if he was Christ on earth, it says. He's not Christ. He's just Constantine. He's just a dragon wrapped up. And look at verse 15. All the earth were to worship the image of the beast. Now, when we see that word image, what does it remind us of? For me, it reminds me of the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And here we have the image of the beast. And look what he's doing. He's speaking. And all the earth may worship him. He's got great public relations, this image, isn't he? He's the spokesman of the power. The image of the beast speaks great things. And if we think about that final beast in Revelation chapter 7, the horn that came out spoke great and terrible things. And here we see the image of the beast speaking great and terrible things. My suggestion is that this 
phase is that one horn that spoke in Daniel chapter 7. The horn of power is in this phase of Revelation chapter 13, verses 13 to 15. You know, it was during this time, during this time where Christianity started to interpret lots of the scriptures. And many of those teachings came within the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, which is now what we're seeing in this phase. You know, one of the famous teachings of Catholicism that goes right back to the origin of this, where the Pope was made supreme, is, is this teaching here. It's known as the futuristic interpretation of revelation. This is what many Catholics today believe in, and certainly most Catholics would have believed in at this time, because look what it is. Mankul Ribera published a commentary on Revelation as a counter-interpretation to the prevailing view among Protestants. The Protestants identified the papacy with Antichrist. But he said, Antichrist, he taught, would be a single evil person who would be received by the Jews and would help rebuild Jerusalem. Who do we believe is going to be the man who's going to be received eventually by the Jews, eventually, and rebuild Jerusalem? The Bible says that's Jesus. And Catholicism says whoever does that, they're the Antichrist. That's the pollution that was brought into this system, teaching multitudes, nations, and tongues that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to reestablish Jerusalem, the whole world will see him as Antichrist. You know, we think COVID has caused chaos. You imagine when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, places his feet upon the Mount of Olives, and establishes Jerusalem as the capital of the world. How the world is going to view that moment, especially in Western Europe. That's why there's a while before we fully educate the people of the world. It's gonna take a, time, a long time because over the centuries, they've been polluted away from what the truth is. And so here we have this phase. And when we come then to the final phase in Revelation chapter 17, we see the woman and she's on the beast. You know, we saw this woman in Revelation 12. Uh, and throughout time, she's been so twisted by Western Rome She's no longer fleeing from the beast. Now she's sat upon the beast and she's controlling him. She's now a harlot. And it only makes sense that the final phase of this beast system is what we now call as Christian Europe. Christian Europe. Look at Revelation 17 verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-coloured beast full of names of blasphemy, 
having seven heads and ten horns. And this is how God sees the system. And notice again, still, we've got seven heads and ten toes. They're still on this Western power. You know, how do we know that this phase here is what we now know as Europe? Because believe it or not, Rome did fall. Its legacy lives on, its roots still live, but actually the power of Western Rome fell in 476 AD. Uh, and we remember those 10 horns, don't we? Well, when Rome fell, those 10 horns were crowned and they had their own sovereignty and they settled and over time, they eventually became Europe. And that's why we have the beast with the 10 horns and the woman. So we've got to ask a very, very interesting question here. What is the main Christian religion that rules over Europe? that rules over the West of Europe. Who's the harlot? Well, it has to be what we call Roman Catholicism. And there is the woman, the religious system, the fallen system on top of the beast, which is Europe. And that's exactly what the final phase is. And that's exactly where we are today. And that's exactly where the one foot of Nebuchadnezzar stands. You know, finally now, that's the West. What happened to the East? I know it's almost been silent, isn't it, in Revelation? As we go through the beast, we see this, don't we? So before we look at the dragon, I mean, the, the, I mean, the, these slides have done their rounds, to be honest with you. I mean, we've seen them time and time again. But when we think about the woman and the beast, Roman Europe, look what we see in the iconography around Europe. We see a woman riding a beast. It's almost there in front of our eyes, isn't it? So, so that's got to be, that's thing. it's got to be the Vatican, Catholicism, riding on top of the European Union, right? Europe, Western Europe. Now, right, now we get to the dragon. So what, what did happen to the dragon? It, you know, it just seems to be silent throughout time. So as we work our way through the beast, the dragon just continues. It doesn't change. It doesn't change at all. Now, what happened to Constantine, it, it, you know, it had an amazing empire in the sense of it lived for so long, but like Rome fell, well, Constantine fell as well. Constantinople fell. It fell pretty much almost a thousand years later after the West fell. It really did stand a long time, the Byzantium powers. It had its own destiny. Now, although the East has been quite quiet in Revelation, dear me, the Eastern power is going to take absolute precedence in Bible prophecy. It ain't quiet. Believe me, it's going to show its voice time 
and time again. So what happened to the Constantinople power? Well, through time, you know, they separated from the West. Eventually in, in 1054, the West and the East had a schism and they developed over time and they developed their own religion and their own bureaucracy and their, their own policies. And eventually they had their own power. And if the West became Catholicism, then the East became something known as the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Western powers base was in the Vatican, right? The Eastern's religious power was based in a place called St. Sophia's, which we see there on the screen, based in Constantinople. So there were two religious temples, the Vatican and St. Sophia's. There was two religions, Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox. But eventually this Eastern power fell. It came to a swift conclusion almost in one night because a group of people headed up by a man called Mohammed II came in and took Constantinople in uh, 1453. And we know that power as the Ottoman Empire. And their main religion was, was Muslim, Islam. They were Muslims, they were Islamic. And in 1453, they came to the dragon power, right? And they overtook it, they ransacked it, and it came to a conclusion at a swift end to the dragon power of Rome. And Rome, as we once knew it, fell that night. And now the Ottoman, the Islam religion, occupied Constantinople. And that's why Turkey today, right, is Muslim. It's the Ottoman Empire, the old Ottoman Empire, and they're still there today. Now, what happened? And this is where we're going to finish off. What happened to the people who were living in Constantinople? Well, they fled. They couldn't stay there because the Muslims wanted to kill them for their beliefs. They needed to contain, they needed to keep and cherish their philosophies, their ideologies, their theologies, their religion. It's all they love, Rome, the power of Rome. They couldn't let that fall to the Muslims. So they fled. And they fled north, look in history. They fled north and they set up a new camp, a new base that had all the heritage of what was once Constantinople. And they fled to a place that we now call Moscow. And in fact, the name Moscow goes right back to the ninth century. So it would have been named Moscow in 1453 and that's where they fled to and they set up a new camp, a new base, a new power in what we now call Russia and this is why Moscow is known as the third Rome.
because there were three Roman powers, Rome, Constantinople, and Moscow. But there are only two legs of Nebuchadnezzar's image. There's not three legs. There's two. Constantinople has to be regained. It has to be gathered up again. And the only power who can claim the title of Rome are the powers in Moscow. And it comes no surprise, is it? No surprise that the religion of Russia is Eastern Orthodox. I mean, I've looked at a map many times and I wouldn't describe Russia as being East. I would very much describe Russia as being North. So why are they Eastern Orthodox? Because it all goes back to Eastern Rome. It goes back to Constantinople. They took their religion to Russia. And that's why we have Eastern Orthodox there. And this is why when the Turks, when the Ottoman Empire came into Constantinople and wiped them out, when we see them today, Eastern Europe, what's the religion, friends? There's two religions. There's Eastern Orthodox, which is like Romania, Romania Ukraine, Bulgaria, Greece. But there's also Islam, which is places like Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. And so in the East, we have a mixture between the Ottoman Empire and the Eastern Orthodox Empire, the Constantinople power, right there in Eastern Europe today. And there's one thing that Russia wants more than anything else. There's a mission a long-term or a short-term mission that this man has. He wants Constantinople back. He wants Saint Sophia back. And he doesn't want it as a mosque as it is today. He wants it as Eastern Orthodox. He wants the Eastern power back. He wants Constantinople back. He wants his religion back. He wants Rome back. And he wants the Eastern leg to stand tall again as it once was during the times of Constantinople. This is what Putin and Russia wants. And the return of Christ can only happen once the image of the two feet of Nebuchadnezzar stands on both territories to unite the East and the West, and to unite the dragon and the beast once again. As for the future of Russia, well, that's going to have to wait for the next session. Thank you. Mm -hmm.